Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. It's time to prepare for your latest dose of radiotherapy. And I'll go nice and slow on my intro so that we can get the Zoom working. We're trying new technology this morning, a mix of things, so apologies in advance. I'm Dr. Doolittle, and we have a packed show this morning. Guess what we've coming up today? Well, we've got quite a few people in here with us because we're trying to do the old mix of Zoom and telephone and everything else and seeing how it goes. We've got Dr. Patient, Cyber Sue. Dr. Spock, panel beater on the panel, a.k.a. Kent from Marinara. Dr. Patient's going to tell us about the recently released National Stigma Report Card, which showed, amongst other things, that 70% of people with complex mental health issues face stigma and that 72% of people with mental illnesses said stigma had discouraged them from socialising, making new friends or dating. Cyber Sue's on. You know Cyber Sue loves the old computers, the internet, everything to do with telemedicine. And she's going to report on an article from The Conversation showing we aren't using telehealth and all its various features to its full potential. And guess what? We've got a very special guest. Professor Shitij Kapoor is the Dean of the Faculty of Medicine, Dentistry and Health Science and Assistant Vice-Chancellor of, of Health at the University of Melbourne. Now, Shitij has many interests and areas of expertise, including the future of healthcare and how we adapt to new challenges. In fact, I've ta- heard him talk many times on things like the role of genetics and uh, the role of technology. So he's in a unique position to think about how COVID might impact on the future of healthcare. And he's going to join us to talk about that and how we educate our future healthcare workers. Team, I hate to do uh, production on air for the poor old audience, but how are we going? Do we think we've got things moving and uh, the echo gone away, panel beta? Hello out there. Um, I'm not sure that we have. Now, while we're waiting for everyone to come on board... I can't hear anyone except myself. They're busily running around. Let me tell you, I always have a little backup story up my sleeve. Um, Let me tell you about this backup story. I read about about something something this week. I can hear a little bit of echo, so I wonder what's going on. But I read about something this week that came out on social media and was also in the newspaper about an initiative from Alfred Psychiatry called Ward robe, wardrobe, as in, you know, a cupboard, wardrobe. And what they've done is set up a program to collect donated clothing, both new and old, to supply clothing to people who come into the hospital with just the clothing on their back. Now, I know a lot of you out there are healthcare workers and you've worked in hospitals and in um, mental health facilities, so you know what it's like. Um, Many people come in and, you know, they might have either been homeless or at a particularly low point of their life when they're admitted, not necessarily just to the psych ward, but to any ward. And they've often come in, you know, with nothing. And this program, provides them with, they've got a whole range of clothing, pre-loved and new, like for example, the new stuff's obviously things like underwear and socks and stuff like that. Um, and when people come in, they can, um, you know, they can access this stuff to just feel a little bit better about themselves and the experience of being in hospital. I read about it uh, all on the Alfred Health website, which is alfredhealth.org.au. Um, so check it out, everyone. I think it's a great initiative. Now, bear with me. I'll just check where we're up to. How are we going, team? Maybe we could play a song or a couple of announcements whilst we're uh, fixing up the technical stuff, because otherwise I fear I'm going to bore everyone. But you know what? Until I get a wave, I'm going to go to the latest COVID news. I've just had the computer going, and, uh, you know, God, this is... 
this is great news. New cases today, two. Deaths in the last 24 hours, zero. The 14-day rolling average for Metro Melbourne, you know we're aiming to get it under five, is now 7.5. We are so close. And the regional 14-day average is 0.5 and the national number of new cases is 13. I guess that's just testament to the amount of work that's been done in, in our community, especially, I mean, all over Australia, obviously. But, you know, the challenges we've gone through in Victoria, I forget how many weeks we've been locked up, but uh, it seems to me it's about eight or nine now. I can't remember. And, uh, you know, my sense, you know, I get to speak to a lot of people, as I've said before. My sense is we've got really good at it. Um, you know, even even the people, you know, obviously it's incredibly challenging for people who've got businesses and things like that, but we've actually got incredibly good at it. You know, notwithstanding the things we read about in the media where some people aren't, you know, follow, towing the line as much as they should, overall... The response has been incredible, and those numbers are a testament to it. And I guess we've all got our fingers crossed for the for the news today about what is going to open and what isn't going to open. But I guess you know my take home message when I see those numbers yesterday one, today two, is um, you know all the work paid off. You know because when we were launching into all of this lockdown, I know you know myself, I was sort of thinking, oh goodness, I hope this works. Can we really get it under control? When you see what happens in other countries, and uh, I'm just incredibly thankful. I guess I guess everyone is. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Hello, we're back. We have a plan. Let's see if it's working. Um, Panel beta. Yes, I can hear you loud and clear, and you're sounding a lot clearer now too. Oh, that's beautiful. What about uh, if we ask the people on the uh, Zoom to chat <laughs> and see if they're working without echo? Hello, Doolittle. Oh, Hello, that's Spock. Good, Good morning, Doolittle. <laughs> Good oh. morning, Doolittle. Hey, almost the whole crew, with the expect, with the exception of Trainer Wheels, is here. We've got. We're going to say. I'm going to say quick g'day to you all, and then we're going to play an announcement and get um, Prof Kapoor on because we promised him at 10:15 and we'll come back and do the rest of the show after the interview. But first, let's say a good morning. Dr Spock, how are you, man? I'm very well, thanks, Dillard. How are you? I'm very good. I can see you. This is almost like the real thing. Um, Dr Patient, how are you, my friend? Yeah, good, good. Looking forward to the announcements today. Yes. And uh, and finally, so- oh, not finally, we've got panel beta as well, Cyber Sue. How are you? I'm fantastic. Hello, Doolittle. Oh, wow. We can hear everyone. Panel beta, are you there too? I am, I am. Yep. Hey, uh... While we say a couple of quick hellos, Panel Beater, would you mind getting Professor Kapoor on the phone? For sure. And then we'll just say a quick g'day, what's going on, and then we'll come back to that interview after whatever you tell us, and uh, and we'll see how we go. Audi- By the way, audience, again, many apologies. Uh, we uh, each, each week when we try different things, we overcome different uh, technological hurdle- hurdles, and it's always a challenge. Hey, uh, Dr. Spock, what have you been up to, man? Oh, you know, just uh, the usual lockdown stuff. Actually, I'm on ward service at the moment, so that's been good. Lots of interaction with kids, which I always like. is my the most fun part of my job. Hey, you were going to tell us a little bit, because I know this is a really brief story, so we can squeeze it in. You were going to tell us about um, International Allied Health Professionals Day. Yeah. Yeah, look, this is. I think this is a good news story that's worth um, trumpeting about. You know, allied health professionals, for those who don't know, they're a group of, of professional uh, people who work in the hospital system and they really are the, 
the backbone of the hospital of public hospitals really because um, you know most people know about social workers um, physios OTs etc but there are at my hospital alone there's 24 different sort of groups of allied health people and there's you know hundreds of thousands of allied health people around the world and about two years ago in the UK they decided they would sort of have a day to celebrate the the, the sort of the, the um, contribution they make to health and in my area of pediatrics you know there's there's groups people might not have even thought of art therapists music therapists there's groups called child life therapists and they're fantastic a group of people who whenever kids are having procedures done like a a drip put in or something like that which is pretty stressful um i've put in drips in kids where a child life without having to use any sort of any kind of sedation or anything else where I otherwise in the past would have because a child life therapist is there talking the child through talking the parent through um using music and and video and other and games and various things to to get them through things we so it's a it's a on wednesday it was um allied health day at our hospital there was a grand rounds where um a number of people talked about the areas of work they do within the hospital is really inspiring yeah it's really surprising because everyone thinks of hospitals as you know it's all the support staff um and then the doctors and the nurses and all that sort of stuff but you know you you forget that there's that whole third uh, i'll not forget we all know and in fact you know in my department is actually uh, you know my department is actually psychosocial oncology at peter mac and our department actually has three allied health professions music therapy social work and psychology plus psychiatry rolled into the one department because we all do sort of similar work and it is really great to just sort of take a breath and reflect on the amazing work they do and give them their due because I think a lot of the you know a lot of the attention goes to the doctors and nurses and so it's really nice that uh, you know that that sort of awareness and I'm really thankful that you brought it up now I'm pretty sure we've got Prof Kapoor on the phone and so we are going to go to that interview I think is that the plan panel beta it is professor are you there Yes, hi. Good morning, Steve. I am here. Look, I'm very sorry. We've had some technical problems this morning, so I haven't done your intro yet, so just bear with me while I tell everyone about you. Professor Shitij Kapoor is the Dean, Faculty of Medicine, Dentistry and Health Science at and the Assistant Vice-Chancellor Health at the Uni of Melbourne. Shatij is a clinician scientist with expertise in psychiatry, neuroscience, brain imaging, and obviously education. I guess you wouldn't know this, but, you know, talking about um, allied health and the various other things, the Faculty of Medicine, Dentistry, and Health Science comprises over 1,700 academic and 800 professional staff, serves over 8,800 students, and publishes more than 4,000 peer-reviewed papers per year. So, obviously, a massive research component as well. And Shatij himself has published published hundreds of scientific papers and you know to what he's received too many awards to uh, mention it's it's uh, you know you, how long have you been in australia now shatish uh, going on four years steve four years that's fantastic because i remember when you first came on we chatted on oh, it was on i think it was on abc it was on a different radio station but i remember then and i followed all your stuff and the first thing i wanted to ask you because you know i think you're in a really unique position with regard to your world view because obviously you're of indian heritage and i know that you've trained and worked in pittsburgh Toronto, London, and of course now Melbourne, amongst other places. So I'm just wondering, you know, your world travel and having worked in so many systems, what sort of insight does that give you into what's going on with the pandemic at the moment? Yes, look, it's been a fortune, I have to say, to have uh, trained and worked in all these different settings. Um, But I would say we should put them into buckets. Uh, I think India is uh, a different case. Uh, But I think the U.S., Canada, U.K., and Australia are quite comparable. 
And I have to say that, you know, if I had to draw a league table today of how uh, the countries have done uh, in the pandemic, one would have to give Australia a gold medal. Now, uh, before we go patting ourselves in the back, we have to, of course, ask ourselves, how come Australia uh, has done better than these other three comparable jurisdictions? And I have to say it starts with geography. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're lucky to be, you know, a small nation on a very large island uh, or a continent, you might call it. And that gave us some natural protections. But having said that, we weren't immune because, of course, the infections came at an early stage. And I think after that, I credit uh, a few things. Uh, First is um, that I think our political system responded in the early days with coherence. You know, this national cabinet stuff, it was kind of made really for COVID. Uh, So it it responded with coherence. And I think it has listened to scientific advice. Now, look, scientific advice always doesn't speak with one voice. So, you know, sometimes you get differences of opinion, and that's only natural and welcome. But I think the, the Australian politicians as well as their relationship with science, needs to be recognized and lauded. Uh, And the last part of all of this success, I think the credit goes to the Australian public, to us, you Mm. know. Uh, Not everywhere in the world uh, have people responded and been as uh, compliant and agreeable. You know, Melbourne's got the world's longest lockdown with probably the lowest number of cases, relatively speaking. And I think it it speaks at some level to the trust uh, and the willingness of the public, because you just can't enforce something like this unless the public does it. So, look, as I look around the world, I I think the gold medal for the moment, mind you, this is a marathon. We're only at the 400-meter mark. So don't take this medal home, but we're in the leading position. And I think it's a function of our geography. It's a function of our uh, political academic system and that relationship. But finally, credit to the Australian people. Yeah, it's been quite amazing. You know, I also want you to cast your mind back because I know it's only the 400-metre mark of a marathon, but we are, I think, starting to reflect on how we all managed it and, you know, which approaches were best. And, and you know, when I look at the size of your department, you know, really, you know, you're managing 2,500 staff and 8,800 students. I want you, you know, I want you to, want, you know, to give us a little bit of a sense of what it was like when this first hit because it hit universities particularly hard. You know, how did you decide what to do and how did you decide which changes to prioritise and, you know, was it panic stations or, you know, how did you manage that early phase? Right. So I have to say that, you know, we were very fortunate that because the Doherty Institute is a part of our faculty, um, that we got some early insights into it. And I remember back to Australia Day, I remember it was the 26th of January or 27th that we isolated the virus at the Doherty Institute. So that sensitized us to the issue. But I have to be fair, in January and February, we thought, boy, this is a big epidemic going on in China. We just need to make sure we sort of, you know, protect ourselves. And our biggest concern at that point in time was for our students uh, from China who were either unable to come um, or, or, you know, there were quarantine restrictions. We never really thought it would become a big issue for us. Um, and then uh, further to tell you how, you know, it's all very good to be a messiah in hindsight, but I quite remember in March when things started to heat up a little bit 
uh, in Melbourne and Australia in general. It was more actually in New South Wales at that point in time. Um, we as a university, as a precautionary measure, decided to actually go online. And I remember a little anecdote. As we were going online, cleaning out our offices, we decided to set up a little office pool. And look, I won't embarrass people, but let me tell you, in this office pool were some of the smartest medical people, uh, you know, in the city. And we were to bet on which date will we be back on. And this is the week of the 23rd of March. Can I just say 16 or 17 people bet in that pool? And 16 have already lost. In other words, our predictions of when we would be back in full force uh, were actually, you know, much more optimistic than life turned out to be. But look, uh, once this started hitting in March and the full gravity of it came home, we pivoted rather quickly. So um, all our classes went online. Uh, even some of the traditional lab classes were taught in very innovative ways using digital technologies and online. And of course, once we went from the first to the second semester, we were much better prepared because now we anticipated that we would be teaching online. So look, it has been a huge transition. Uh, incredible credit goes to the teachers and the educators for being innovative, but also for our students for being accommodating. You know, life has been very difficult for them. Um, they're often in, in small little rooms and dorms, uh, cut off pretty much by themselves, attending classes on a computer six to eight hours a day. It has been difficult, but they've been remarkable. What do you do to um, help them with their well-being? Yes, uh, look, it, it has been an evolving story because, as I said, one, when it began, we just didn't know how long this was going to last. Mm. And, and, you know, most of us being asked in March thought, well, four weeks, six weeks, Easter. Um, but slowly it sank into us that this was for the long term. So the first is it had some very practical financial implications for our students. You know, uh, some of them didn't even have all the proper IT equipment to be taking, you know, full-time courses online. So the university set up bursary schemes and other hardship schemes to support people financially. So that's at a very minimal basic level. But the other thing we realized is that we had to urge students to not only do their work, but also take good care of themselves. So we've been trying to share with them mental health strategies personal care strategies, well-being strategies, but also urge where possible to form, uh, you know, remote communities like social media communities so that they can have groups that they can connect with and have companionship with. But look, I have to say, despite that, it has been a hard and a long haul. And I'm really hoping, you know, we're, we're talking Sunday about 1025. I'm hoping that about one o'clock uh, we'll get some good news from the Premier, which will set us on the path to normalisation. Mm, fingers crossed. You know, the other thing I wonder about is, you know, for me, I run a clinical unit in a hospital and, you know, and we've made so many changes that probably once a week or so I sort of sit back and think, you know, what's our core roles here? Are our patients getting seen? Are we providing the same level of care? Are we communicating with, you know, so I try and think of the core values that normally, you know, running a department's a bit like riding a bike after you've been doing it, you know, 10 or more years, mm -hmm. I'm up to about 20. Um, and, and it's hard to remind yourself. So I wonder, you know, your core values, I assume, are obviously education and research. You know, how do you know, how do you know that your education's occurring to the same degree? How are you maintaining your educational standards? 
Yes, look, uh, that's a very important question. So we assure ourselves of that in two ways. Uh, one is, of course, uh, you know, as you would imagine, anyone going to university would know there are a lot of assessments that we do. And we monitor those assessments and the results and how students are faring in those very carefully. And that assures us that at least that aspect of education is going well. The other aspect is we get regular feedback from students, as I'm sure you do from patients, as to their experience of the educational um, you know, exchange. And I've been actually quite surprised. Um, you know, overall attendance levels for sort of Zoom lectures are actually higher than attendance we used to have to in-person lectures. So look, at that level, you could say education is coming along quite nicely. But, you know, the point of coming to university was not just to pass a few exams, learn a few facts, and get on with it. University was a socio-cultural experience on top of the educational experience. So in some sense, look, I think the educational aspect of it has been reasonably preserved, but I would have to say that it's a bit dry. It's devoid of the richness of the socio-cultural experience, which is what made the university where young people developed themselves and not just learned a few facts and got a degree. Now, how to do that is a challenge. Uh, we have, of course, as I mentioned, you know, urged people to form some communities. We've really supported their student groups to continue online. But look, it is a pale replacement of the real presence on a university campus. So, um, yeah, so it, I, I think it's a glass half full but there is a long way to go. You see, I'd agree, I'd agree clinically too. I think, we, you know, it's easier to get patients' appointments, our consumers, especially if they live in the country. Some of our attendances are much better, but there's a, a certain human element that we're still struggling to replace. Hey, I also wanted to touch on a point you made earlier when we talked to, you know, you run a big department with all those people. You've got the Doty Institute. You've got experts in, you know, hospitals like St V's, the Melbourne Health, the Children's, all across the place. And, um, and we've never had so much science scientific debate that it's included so many experts, often with experts with polarising, quite opposite views, as well as lots of people who are in the middle. And so I wonder, you know, um, how do you handle that as a leader when you've got people in your department who sometimes are getting, you know, who are quite extreme opposites and um, sometimes get passionately angry with each other? You know, what's your general thoughts on the, um, yeah. in, on the sort of the polarising that we're seeing in the community amongst experts in particular? So... Uh, look, the beauty is that the university or a faculty never has a view on anything. It is not the place of a university or a faculty to have a view on matters. It is our job to be a crucible. It is, it is our job, really, to be the place where thoughtful debate happens and, and where thoughtful scholars have views. So in other words, you know, unlike a corporation or a government that has a view, universities don't have a view, other, other than, of course, you know, some issues about how we care for our students and staff. But on these technical matters, there are no corporate views. There are the views of individuals. Now, it is not new in a university for individuals to have uh, almost uh, the complete spectrum and, and even opposing views. You would find that in all departments at all times, and that is what makes a university vibrant. But what makes it survive 
is this ethos of respectful debate. Mm. And I think what COVID has done has actually exposed to the public, which may not as yet have had you know, the sense of the range of views in a university, it is exposed to the public that, boy, there are a lot of scientists and they say a lot of things and and sometimes they agree, but sometimes they disagree and sometimes those disagreements are even polar. So uh, it has led to an interesting, uh, I, I would say, exposure of a scientific expert to realize that there isn't in science always the clarity or a single answer that the world might want. Having said that, however, it is only through a respectful debate between the various points of views, rather than finger-pointing or mudslinging, that you can ever really find a good path forward. So I hope that to the degree it has been possible, and I dare say that largely it has been possible, people have expressed their views but had respect for the differences. And my job uh, as a dean or our job as a university is, is to ensure that respect for differences. Yes, it's so important. I agree. At the top of the um, interview, I, I flagged that, you know, one of the, you know, I think I've said this before, one of my favourite talks in the last few years was I heard you talk, I think it was the Royal Children's, about the future of healthcare, and you talked about various impacts. So I was really keen to ask you, you know, the big impacts back then, I think, were genetics, technology, um, advances in monitoring, like all the stuff that can monitor blood pressure and, di- and blood sugars in real time and that sort of stuff. You know, and I guess, and I also saw you wrote an article in The Australian about about uh, a vaccine and how that might look. Um, so I just wondered, what are your thoughts on how medicine's going to look in whatever, a couple of years or five years or 10 years? What's yeah. it going to look like in the post-pandemic, in, in, given the pandemic's occurred and it's sort of changed all of our priorities? Yes, well, look, uh, I think you opened this question very nicely, allowing me a disclaimer, because you said that I was giving some talk two years ago and talked about the future of medicine, and I did not talk about COVID, because I had no clue that COVID was coming. So I think the first thing is that many of any of us so-called experts try to project. We are really projecting from, from our past. So these aren't predictions in any way. They're really more projections of of how one might see the future. But look, I do believe that COVID has fundamentally changed healthcare going to the future. So, you know, at the moment, we're all very preoccupied with infection rates and, you know, how many numbers and how many deaths with COVID. Believe me, this will come and go. But the changes it will bring to the rest of healthcare and medicine are here to stay. And I see two or three broad areas of change. First mm-hmm. yep. is, as we just spoke. Sorry, you dropped out for a second there. Could you do first again? Yeah, the first is this idea of telehealth and remote consultation. Am I coming through clear now? Yes, you are. Thank you. Yeah. So, look, there was no virtue in someone in getting into their car fighting traffic for 30 minutes, finding parking for 20 minutes, going through the hospital lifts, seeing a doctor for five minutes just to get their prescription replaced, and then coming back, repeating the entire thing, spending three hours of what could very efficiently be done by video in 10 minutes, all done. So so I think we have found that efficiency. The technology is there. It will need to be improved. Some funding mechanisms will have to be changed to enable it in the long run. But this is here to stay. 
It was not in the patient's interest. It was not in the doctor's interest. So a significant part, not everything, um, will go towards telehealth, and that's good. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not, second, we're going to talk about that next, so I won't, I won't okay. give you any sub-questions on telehealth. After uh, this interview, we've got one of our uh, experts on telehealth talking a bit Brilliant. about the potential. So what was your number two? The number two is that the daily functioning of the hospital uh, has been made highly inefficient, and I use that word advisedly, by COVID. So, you know, the way we used to get people into lines before and we could work through them quickly, now everything, because of the very much heightened hygiene concerns, has made things less productive. So I'm just using a general figure here. So the throughput of surgical theaters, et cetera, has been affected by almost 10 to 20% less. So in other words, because of the new requirements, which make sense and will probably now need to continue for a very long period of time, um, you know, some of our usual procedures have become less effective. But what has also become clear is that Reasonably good health outcomes are being achieved even though we are doing less of things. So in other words, it has exposed what could previously be superfluous or wasteful care. And, and I think this will open up a big dialogue uh, about, you know, what care was essentially wasteful care, again, can just be excised. Because if we wanted to go back and provide all the care we provided before at a time when it has become 10 to 20% less uh, efficient, you realize we'll need that much more money that we might not have. So I think we'll have to look for wasteful care. And the third thing to me is, is that now since a lot of stuff will move online, it's the power of data. So I think now will be the opportunity to actually use the holistic and complete information about an individual to link it across the different portals and to use that to provide personalized bespoke care. And that, to me, is really the project of the future. So I see some good things coming, um, some, some challenging things like finding wasteful care and excising it, but a huge potential in, in using all the information that the system has about an individual to enhance and bespoke care for them. It's fantastic. Great insights. You know, the final thing I just wanted to ask you, because I've been watching you, you know, you put out a weekly video, which I love, you know, it's an update for students and staff of what's going on, and you look really well and you look as healthy as ever. So, I was like, you know, what have you learned? What are your secrets to saying, well, how are you going personally? Ah, oh, well... Well, look, look, I should start with the fortune that um, uh, I'm, I'm very fortunate that I live with my wonderful wife, many years, Sharmista, and we've had each other for the last six months. I think it's been tough on her, but <laughs> for me, it, it, it's, it's been really good. So I think companionship matters. It would be very difficult if one, one was just alone and locked away for six months. The, the second thing is I've tried to maintain some kind of hygiene with respect to work and play and, and you know, shut off at a certain time, uh, moderately successful in that, but I think that would be good advice to follow. And the last thing is, um, you, you know, you have to keep some time for physical activity outside, and ideally if you can learn something new. Now, look, prior to this, I used to do hot yoga and, and play squash. None of that was possible. Uh, so I, I live close to Edinburgh Park, and there's only one hour that was allowed and two. So I thought, what can I do? And every time I tried to jog, I used to develop 
shin splints. So I took up this thing called race walking. I don't know if you've seen the sort of Olympic sport where people kind of waddle like ducks when yes, they're walking. Yes, yes, yes. So, so you know, it's a source of lots of funny memes. That's right, exactly. You know, I've been walking for 55 years. I felt, let, let, me, let me figure it out. So, you know, it's given me a sense that I'm learning something new, so I clock myself every day. And, you know, my performance is probably very modest, but, but you feel you're getting better by five seconds. And that sense of improving at something and learning something certainly brings joy to me. So, look, it's a mixture of companionship. It's a mixture of some sort of hygiene and a sense that you're learning in some way, even though you're locked at home. It has been a good recipe for me. Oh, it sounds like a great recipe. I went for a walk myself around Edinburgh, Edinburgh Gardens the other day and I was amazed at how many people were there. Yeah. Um, but also beautifully <laughs> distanced and everyone being respectful. And gee, there was, it was a beautiful warm night the yeah. other night and I really enjoyed it. Um, Professor Shatij Kapoor, Dean of the Faculty of Medicine, Dentistry and Health Sciences, thank you so much for coming on Radiotherapy this morning and, and sharing all those insights. It's been fantastic. It's always a pleasure, Steve. Thank you. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Have I got the Zoomers on the line with me now? You have. Yay. Hey, uh, sorry for all the mucking around, guys. I hope uh, hope you've been uh, not too uh, angry at me, not throwing stuff at the screen. Hey, uh, why don't we kick off with you, uh, Cyber Sue, Um, especially because... um, Professor Kapoor was just talking about, you know, one of the big changes being uh, telemedicine. You were going to tell us a little bit about an article in the conversation that said we might not be using it to its full potential. Well, that's right. I mean, I think um, as... Kapoor, uh, Professor Kapoor mentions there's some great possibilities for the future of healthcare where COVID has turned things upside down. But I worry, and this article mentions it as well, that we run the risk of missing the boat. And whilst there's all this possibility of uh, data sharing, of um, uh, of remote monitoring and tracking and uh, chronic disease management and so on, um, at the moment, Something like more than 91% of MBS billable telehealth so far was actually telephone consults. And if we start to think that telephone is telehealth, we're going to miss the boat um, in these real transformative changes in the way, way we provide health care. Um, yeah, just, just on yeah. that point, that really stood out for me too, um, yeah. Cyber Sue. Why is that? Why, you know, when we've got all this amazing technology, why is everyone reverting to the old telephone? Is it old habits die hard? Well, I mean, number one, it's easier. It's still easier. And even now, we don't necessarily know if someone's using WhatsApp or FaceTime and so on. And it's what um, uh, I, I think that there's a real breakdown between primary and tertiary care still. And we have different, we need to actually start bringing uh, everybody to work together towards a long term plan. I think we really lack, lack a long term vision in Australia for these digital technologies. We've got um, health services like hospitals that are funded by local state government and then we've got um, primary care and GPs that are privately or federally funded and they're not working together properly and having this vision to move forward. So whilst a hospital might have a pretty good telehealth video system set up, the GP and primary care is a long way disconnected. Spock, you've got a question? I just well, I wanted to say, Cyber Sue, that um, a lot of my colleagues who work in, in, with, 
in paediatrics we're using video, but uh, many of my, most of my colleagues in public hospitals doing adults are using telephone and they said it's because they just couldn't get video to work well. And, yeah. and to me it seems vastly inferior to video. I'm really concerned about the fact that they're doing complex consultations over telephone. What it do you concerns think me too. It absolutely concerns me. I mean, even look right now we're doing radio by Zoom and what a difference it makes to see people. And um, I, I know two people in my immediate, immediate family, one saw an orthopaedic surgeon that she'd never met before and one saw a dermatologist without having any visual impact uh, contact whatsoever. And if we're going to have transformative change, now is the time we should be doing it. And I think we need some real kind of uh, cohesive leadership across the two governments to, to enable that right now. Yeah, especially um, otherwise, we're going to be still using telephone 10 years down the track. Yeah, especially the first few appointments. Before we hit um, the COVID and we had our own telehealth plans at, um, you know, my hospital, Peter Mac, we always made the first appointment face-to-face as far as possible, just for, because, in, of course, mental health, you want the human contact. Hey, but I also wanted to ask, what are the other big things we're missing out on? Other than, you know, apart from that, what other things, you know, in the sort of the future and the digital technologies, you know, I, I think there are some other um, approaches we could consider? Yeah, well, there's um, in the conversation article that you mentioned, they talk about video and telephone being the tip of the iceberg. And it's true, like we're so stuck in that, but all of the monitoring of chronic illness, uh, diabetes, um, home monitoring, people out, keeping people, elderly people at home through uh, through better tracking, we, we haven't even begun to... Uh, to, to work out ways to help that to work for us, data. We've got now got electronic medical record across Parkville Precinct, but that data isn't still connecting with general practice. And so a patient who's on a clinical trial, for example, or they're having their care done in general practice, they get their blood tests done in the local, um, local lab, but those blood tests aren't actually being available within the electronic records of a hospital, so they're not being well tracked. So... Um, you, we've got a long way to go there. It's possible and it's exciting, but we think we have to be focused on the way our government infrastructure spending is committed. Yeah, I think that's a really good message that you've brought today, that idea that, you know, it took us so long just to get started with all this stuff and then along came the pandemic, bang, we all pivoted really quickly, but there's this fear that, you know, we might lose that momentum and we, we have to keep moving and, and get yeah. it as good as we can. CyberSuit, thanks as, for... as consumers, we can drive it a little bit as well by, by asking, our, um, asking, our, uh, asking our doctors and repeatedly asking and asking about using video, for example, and using can I switch over to WhatsApp or can I switch to, what's, to FaceTime instead of using the telephone and start to drive that as well. Fantastic. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that story today. Hey, we are, let's flick straight on to you, Dr. Patient. Um, you have been, well, you've not only, I mean, for people who do, um, don't remember, Dr. Patient's been with us, I don't know, about a year now. Is it about a year? Is it about a year? Yeah, um, yeah and, it's, it's, uh, it's just about a year. And just to remind people, even though I've said it many times before, um, Dr. Patient is Cameron. Cameron we out you, your name because you're in the paper anyway, Cameron Solnordal. Have I pronounced your surname right? Yes. Yeah. And of course, we were on a show together about a year or two ago now called How Mad Are You? Is that right? on SBS? Um, That's the one. And uh, and so we and since then you know you've been on Triple R, basically representing our consumer um, side of of the world. And uh, you're also um, a senior person in Sane Australia. And Sane Australia's just released its National Stigma Report Card. Can you yeah. tell us what it is and a little bit about it? Well, here's the thing. The, the the first time I came on was a year ago, just as we as we launched it, and it was the the first 
uh, first survey of its kind to look at and understand the experiences of people living with complex mental health health issues. So that was a year ago. And that's, um, that's done with the Ann Deverson Research Centre. And just in the past couple of weeks, they finally released the report and it's absolutely massive. We had just under 2,000 people take part and... Uh, it's, it's, How many it's people? 2,000, did you say? Just under 2,000. So 1,912 people took part. And, uh, and it's just, it's just mind boggling. I mean, we have the, uh, if you go back to the site, the national stigma report card.com.au, you will find the entire report there. If you want, if you want to go for the deep dive, it's 386 pages, you know, it's. And so what was it? Sort of a call out across Australia for anyone with serious mental illness to fill out a yep. survey. Was that essentially it? Yeah, it was it was looking at the uh, at the, the the less prevalent disorders. So we were looking at the schizophrenia spectrum disorders, the bipolar uh, personality disorders such as OCD, body dysmorphic, um, you know, severe eating disorders, um, severe treatment resistant depression, and it it was just it was just fantastic. There, there was fourteen uh, what what we were calling life domains investigated, and the top the top five that came back um, were relationships, employment, healthcare, social media, of course, and, and mental health care services. Can you and hold look, on uh, to that? Because we'll play, uh, we've got a couple more sponsorship announcements. So yeah. we'll take a bit, bit of a breather having heard about it, and then we'll come back with the key findings. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Hey, back to you, uh, Dr. Patient. You were just telling us all about the National Stigma Report Card. What were the key findings of the 2,000 people who were surveyed? Oh, the key findings. I mean, there, there is just so many. I mean, here, here's the big one. 71.8% of participants indicated they'd experienced stigma and discrimination when accessing mental health care in the past year. 60% of them said that this had been frequent or very frequent. Now, that's just that's pulling one of the statistics out there. Another one to me, and if we're going to enact any change now, of concern to me was that just under 50%, 49.4% of participants agreed that they had stopped themselves from calling triple zero for an ambulance or attending hospital for emergency treatment of physical health problems because of stigma about mental health issues. That's amazing. So that's stigma coming from the health system, is it? From the health system. 88% of the, of the participants agreed that on, on the social media content that they thought that mental health issues were dangerous or they were the ones to blame, that they were incapable of getting better. And, you know, it's even a quote from, from, uh, from a person in New South Wales saying, I'm so afraid of psychiatric care that I have panic attacks when I pass a hospital. It's amazing. Spock, you had a question? Oh, just, I was actually going to follow up on that, and you really just spoke to a doctor patient. What, what sort of quotes came out? What were some yeah. of the... So the these are one I didn't want to. I didn't want to, you know, pull the novel out. But that was the one that 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 just that blew me away. It said that it also said to finish the quote. I believe I have to lie to doctors and mental health professionals to avoid being harmed. You know that reminds and, me. We were talking about this very issue on the phone um, recently, uh, um, Cam, about um, how I was relaying an anecdote about a doctor who had some mental health problems, and 
I think it was a doctor, and they rang – oh, yeah, it was a doctor. And they rang their GP and the G said, look, I really think it's time I saw a psychiatrist. And the GP said, look, we're going to have to try other things. We don't want you seeing a psychiatrist because it could damage your career. Now, you know, it's, it's terrible, isn't it? There's just no way it can damage your career. It can only help. If you get better, yeah. it's only going to help. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and this is the thing. And so, so now that we have this data, there's, there's no excuse now. You know, there's no more vagaries passed around the table. We, we actually have this data here where you can go in, look at, at your life domain that needs, to be, that needs to be altered, redeveloped, ripped apart and started again if necessary. And, you know, that's, that's where we're at. Once the, once the stigma of this starts to change, then people are going to embrace the, the possibility of, of healthcare. What about, I just wondered about the personal side. You have schizophrenia. So tell me, you know, how do you, how do you, what response do you like to hear? So for you, say you'd said to me in a conversation, oh, yes, yeah, do little, I've got schizophrenia. What's the sort of uh, response that makes you, you know, feel good about it and reduces stigma? I'll tell you the exact response, which, which for the first time ever in, in, in you know, it's, it's been you know, nearly 20 years now, was when we met, we met a, a, a couple just after our son was born, who uh, and they were they were giving birth to their child in the same hospital at the same time, and um, we got to know them just uh, just sort of you know how do people meet people, and they um, they ended up becoming really good friends, and they were moving back to Poland, which uh, moving back to Warsaw, which we were devastated about, and I went out with uh, with uh, with the husband with with my mate, and we were just talking about stuff, and I would have assumed that because we'd known them for such a while a time that it may have come out or may have been discussed. I didn't discuss it with him, but I had schizophrenia. And I sort of alluded to it at the end of the night. We were just talking about it. And he was like, hang on, wait, what? You, you've, got, you've got schizophrenia? And he said, okay, we're not leaving until I, you tell me everything I need to know. Wow. And uh, <laughs> it, was, it was quite an emotional moment because – because we were, we were, you know, we'd become good mates and I just assumed that he knew. But when he said that, he said, right, we're ordering more drinks. I want to sit down. I want to talk about this because I've never met anyone with this diagnosis before. And, and not in those, you know, sort of medical terms. But he said, we're, we're going to sit down. We're going to talk about this. Tell me everything. And, and it was that simple. I suspect that's a lot of what it is, that most people have not actually uh, met anyone with the, these um, and, and they they sort of all they know about is from the movie or something else. So, what do you think we? What's the way of dealing with the stigma? What's what are we going to do? Look, I'm I'm out in the world now. Here's the thing: if you know someone, if you're a friend with someone who has a diagnosis, who is who is a new patient, an old patient, if you if you see me in a bar, assuming we can go back to normal, I want you to walk up to me and I will buy you a drink and we can talk about it. It's as simple as that. It is. It is. You know. I feel like getting a whole bunch of T-shirts made with with uh, ask me about my mental health. You know, if if you have a friend that you're scared to talk about, cut through the fear of it, cut through the BS of it, and just say, look, let's just have a drink and talk about it. We may not agree on it. I've got my own fears. I'm sure you've got your own fears about it as well. But we're so far beyond this this overhyped sensationalism about it. This stigma can be very easily erased. It's, it can be that simple by just saying, let's have a drink about it. And if you want, if you want to know just how it is, now that you've spent 10 months in lockdown, imagine what it's like for a person with complex mental health issues who spends their life in lockdown. Cyber Sue? 
Oh, I just, I love that response, doctor, patient, because um, it just takes away the stigma of not daring to ask about it or thinking, well, okay, not not kind of acknowledging something that you've just told us. Um, so, yeah, great helpful tip, I think, for us. Yeah, awesome, thanks. Yeah. Look, it, it's it's that simple now. We, we it, It's no longer a, a dirty topic, and if it is, then, then, then stop it from being that. And, you know, if you've still got friends or, or, or colleagues who are too afraid to talk about it, that's okay, you know, because as patients, we're afraid to talk about it. But now that we've both agreed that we're afraid to talk about it, let's bloody talk about it. Can I ask you another one on the topic, um, sort of question without notice? Where do you think the majority of the stigma comes from these days? And the two things that come to mind, and you might have more, are, you know, people's personal ignorance not being aware. But I also wonder about the role of the media, TV, you know, where you see such terrible representations. Where do you, what gives you most cause for rolling your eyes? Uh, rolling my, my eyes now is, and this is something that I was, that I was just talking about the other day, the, the, the cultural change is so easy to fix now when you recognise this one thing. And when you hear a headline, hit the front page of the paper, X, Y, Z, violent person, diagnosis of schizophrenia, diagnosis of something, this is the reason why you hear nothing else about the person. It's because when they're going into a pre-plea hearing, they have to report whether or not this alleged person requires anything. Do they have diabetes? Do they need pills for this? And so when you have a court reporter who goes in and hears this person needs pills for their schizophrenia. This is all they can report on. So that's why you hear this overcompensated story because they want to break this story with this thing. And you will have a person that has an untreated psychosis. Sure, that is, that is completely different from an ongoing diagnosis. But using this, this minimal violence and this, this maximum diagnosis, why don't you flip it and say, let's get a GP reporter to go into a GP clinic and sit there and watch 20 people go through, let's say 10 of them have a complex mental health issue. They go in, they get their medication renewed, they go and pick their child up from school and they live their life. Mm. Now that is <laughs> that statistic of one person versus 10 to 20 to 100 people every day who have a complex mental health issue, who are just going about their business. We're only hearing about that one person who's, who's, you know, a minority in this situation. Hey, but Cam. we're not hearing about the hundreds of others who aren't. Cam, that's amazing stuff. Thanks so much for bringing that report to us. People can look it up. It's easy to find online. You already mentioned the website or via Sane Australia. Hey, um, time for some thank yous. Thanks to Professor Shatij Kapoor from the University of Melbourne for joining us this morning. Thanks, Spark. Thanks, Dr. Patient. Thanks, CyberSue. Thanks, Panel Beta, for uh, sorting out all our technical issues. Um, big thanks to Triple R. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page.